welcome back to Dad Conversations, where we spotlight successful, interesting, and normal people who happen to be dads. Today I spoke to Adam Young. This episode's definitely one of the best episodes on the podcast. It's also a little bit different. Adam tells a gripping story about his youngest child, a boy that needed major open heart surgery right after being born. He's since had two more major surgeries and is currently doing well. I didn't ask a ton of questions during the first hour. Adam is a master storyteller who walked me through the lows and highs and more lows and highs of this journey. He just kept rolling and and really took my mind and emotions for a ride. Not going to lie, my eyes started sweating a few times. I eventually asked about his career and life story and approach to parenting, and he had several insightful things to share. Now, if you enjoy this episode, please go ahead and subscribe to the show. Also, we definitely need more reviews on Apple Podcasts, so if you have a minute, please hook us up. The next episodes will include a restaurant manager, a technology sales VP, and many others. I'll talk with each of them about their different areas of expertise, their life stories and philosophies, and of course, their approach to being dads. All right, time to let go of whatever else you may be thinking about and hear an incredible story from Adam. Enjoy. Adam, thanks for being here. Thanks, man. I'm happy to be here. Dude, it's good to catch up. Can you believe it's been, what is it? It's 2020. It's been been like uh, 13 years since I've seen you. It's crazy, man. Like, it's been a long time, but also feels like not too long ago. It's nuts. Yeah. Still got the inner uh, 21-year-old inside of us with, um, you know, we're just a little, a little older, maybe. Hopefully a little yeah. wiser. I don't know. <laughs> yeah, like I, I, I definitely don't want to admit that I'm like I'm feeling older, but like I definitely like feel it when I don't get good sleep now, and if I like exercise, like I for sure have to stretch now. Like I take for granted being like a rubber band as a kid that didn't need any sleep. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, dude, like I want to say it was three, two or three, maybe four months ago. You posted a picture on LinkedIn of. Uh, one of your children that was a a baby like in the in the NICU and strapped to all these wires and monitors and tubes and and um and it was like super emotional man I just seeing the picture I was like my heart went out for to you and you you were posting it on LinkedIn to say like look it's been a crazy journey you've been on and and um a, a wild ride um but at the same time you were shouting out your employer for being really flexible and and working with you when you've had um an experience that no no parent um uh, ever wants to have so um I wanted to start there and just kind of dive deep and and um hear about your story what what you went through and, and maybe eventually bring it around to like any any suggestions or advice you have for someone else who's going through that type of experience sure yeah i mean it was it was for sure one of those things that um when you see it uh from a distance it's super heavy it's incredibly heavy as a parent for sure but like when you're when you're somewhat removed from it where it's not personally affecting you. You you look at it, man, that's gnarly. And then when you go through it, um, it was insane. One of the things you don't think is going to ever actually happen to you. And uh, I can definitely say it's one of those things that has profoundly changed my, my life for the better. 
um, a very heartbreaking and, and sad experience to have gone through. And it's still very challenging, but also just really shifted um, a lot of things in my life of what were important and what I thought was important. But yeah, that post I did on, on LinkedIn was just, it was my son. So my son has had three open heart surgeries in three years of his life. He had one when he was seven days old, one when he was six months old, and then one just this summer, um, right before he turned three. And it was kind of a three, three stages of this single repair that they, they break it up just because it's, it's essentially re replumbing his heart and, um, re, you know, changing the direction of flow and, and doing it all at once is just too much for a newborn baby, but something needed to happen fairly immediately. And so they, they break it up over, over a couple of years. And so the final repair was, uh, this summer. And, you know, when you, when you watch your child sort of fight for their life and as a dad, who's the, the macho protector, where all that is sort of stripped from you and you have to just just kind of let it ride. Um, there's a lot of, uh, of uh, humility that, that is forced on you. And it's caused a lot of uh, introspection and, and reflection on, you know, on my life and on the people who have supported me through it. And just, you know, as you can probably imagine, like it would just, it causes you to think a lot about what's important to you. And we were kind of on the, we kind of gotten out on the other side of this thing. And as you can imagine, we went into this surgery in the middle of a pandemic and, and his surgery actually had been postponed and only one parent could be in the hospital room at a time. It was just very, very heavy. And uh, he was home and he's doing good now. And so I just, I was just kind of, you know, taking all the emotion in and I, I, I thought it was appropriate to, to post that on on LinkedIn, just because I think we're all have experienced a level of anxiety one way or another in this last in this last year. It's been a gnarly year for everyone. I think it's something that's touched everybody in some sort of way. And and uh, I was so lucky and blessed to have worked for two separate companies at the time of both of these surgeries that were just so incredibly supportive. Um, you know, it's one thing to to have to just you know dedicate all of your energy into like fighting for your child to live and then also have a life outside of that. We have two other kids trying to make sure that there is plenty of times where we were in the hospital with my son and I didn't know what day it was, let alone where my kids were even at in the world. I didn't know who was watching them. And, and that was all you know really hard to deal with. And then you have a, a career, like how am I going to pay for all this stuff? And, and, and how am I going to, you know, be a functioning member of a company when I'm, I'm barely, you know, fighting, you know, to, to keep my eyes open as my son's sitting here in the hospital. And so I was so blessed and fortunate to work for two great companies during that time. I like to, to shout out to them. The first was Boostability. Um, I was working in uh, business development on that uh, during that first uh, surgery. And uh, we had just started like a pretty much a new program, new compensation plans. And we're just like putting a lot of time and energy and resources into me being successful and helping the company win. And all of this stuff just had to put the brakes on. And uh, I was obviously feeling a lot of anxiety about that um, going into it. And I remember right before um, I was kind of taking the time off to, to go prepare for the, my son to be born and to have the surgery, our CEO called me into his office. And at that time we had three offices and about 600 employees and called me and sat me down and said, hey, listen, I just, I want you to take the time that you need 
to go be with your family. I don't want to see PTO being logged. I don't want to hear that you're taking sales calls. I just want you to just to go take care of your family. And when you're back, you're back. And like, that was like such a, such a relief, you know, off of my shoulders more than I really knew it would be. And as we were, you know, in the hospital that first time, you get to kind of know people that their kids are also in the hospital. And there was a, a couple next to us and we were talking and the husband had, they were from uh, Idaho and the husband had lost his job because they were traveling back and forth to the hospital. And so now they were dealing with unemployment on top of their kid fighting for their life. And I thought, man, that would just, that would make it so much harder. Right. And so um, in this last surgery, I was, um, I was working for a company called Pronto and it was the same thing. Um, it was a startup. We were in the middle of a pandemic. Our strategy and, and funding, everything was shifting. And uh, same thing, my, my, my boss, our CEO, Zach Mangum, reached out to me and said, listen, I need you, you need to just unplug and just go be with your family. And my whole company, every, every single employee reached out to me and said, hey, we're, we're pulling for you. We're fighting for you and Ty. And we're just there for you. And that made just such a, such a difference to me. And I think we can get caught up so much in what's important about um, where we work, you know, especially in this day and age where, you know, perks and, and employee benefits can get super insane. And, 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 you know, how do we really make people feel like they're, impo- like they're important? It's when we, re- when we really let them know that like we care about them more than, you know, swag and free lunch on Tuesdays. I think when, when, when people know, when our employers know that, that, they care about us. Like I, for me personally, that's when I'm able to do my best work when I know that I'm trusted and cared about. And so while I don't work for those companies anymore, I'm, uh, I will, I will forever be indebted to them and it's changed the way that I view, uh, myself as a boss, the way that I, I view my company that I work for and the things that, um, you know, when I'm going to start it or start a new company or to join a company, that's the first thing I want to look at is, is how do they show their employees that they care? Because you can mask a lot of bad things in a company with, with swag and, and benefits and stuff. But if you, people sniff out pretty soon, if you don't actually care about them. And so that was just out of a dark time, that was a really positive experience that, that I gained professionally and wanted to, to share that, you know, professionally, you know, as I was going through it. Yeah, man, that, that personal touch makes all the difference in the world, you know, where it doesn't feel totally. like you're being supported because you're, you know, employee number X, Y, Z, and, and you, you know, there's this package that everyone has and you're just another number, but like some people, you know, whether it's one person or the entire organization reaching out in, um, with a, a message just for you of love and support, man, that's pretty cool. Yeah, for sure. What, what was it like when your son, did you know that he would need heart surgery before he was even born? Yeah. So, um, this was our third kid. Um, we have, so we have a daughter who's seven and a daughter who's five now. So they were much younger at the time. Um, but it was our first boy. So we had just found out he was a boy and we're super excited about that. And, um, my wife in between our two daughters had had what's called a molar pregnancy. I had never heard of it before, but it's, it's, it can get pretty uh, serious really fast. It's where um, your body thinks it's pregnant, but the embryo 
is um, basically empty. And so your your body starts to grow this web of of just it doesn't know what's happening and uh if you don't get it removed fast uh something bad can happen and so that had happened and we not, nothing bad happened there but what it did cause was we had to wait a little bit in between our first and second child and we had to have like extra ultrasounds just to ensure that that wasn't happening again and so um, fast forward to being pregnant with ty um, my wife was at the 20 week ultrasound and, uh, this is where they do the anatomy and, and, um, we're, and all, and prior to that to our other two girls, all the ultrasounds, they always had a hard time getting really good pictures just because they were sitting wrong or seeing where nothing was unfamiliar, um, with this experience. But the ultrasound technician, I remember her saying, I can't, we can't get a good shot of his heart. And since you have this high risk level, your insurance is approved to get more ultrasounds. So let's just go ahead and reschedule and get another one maybe one day when he's you know sitting still in there. And so again, being like our third kid and and uh, you know, you don't have it, it, it wasn't as you know, nothing was it wasn't scary or anything. It was just like, yeah, we just gotta go get another picture. And so I was traveling for work. Um, and so I asked my wife, I was like, hey, I have this, you know, I have this uh this work trip I need to go on, we can reschedule the appointment or I can just stay back and not go on that trip. And my wife was like, that's fine. I just got to get pictures. We'll be good. And so that was that. And so I didn't, I'll never, ever forget. And even it was in, I was in Chicago and I like, even I've traveled to Chicago, like probably 30 times after that. And I refused to stay at that Marriott just because it just gives me such bad feelings of, I was in the hotel. I was getting ready to head out to the conference and my wife called and I just answered and she was, I can hear that she was really emotional on the phone. And obviously you got, you got two kids and a million things going on. Like I couldn't imagine what was happening, but I really didn't think that it was going to be something was wrong with the baby. I thought it was one of our other kids had gotten hurt or something. Right. All of a, all of a sudden I felt really, really far from home. Right. Like I'm like, freak, I got to go home. And she just was kind of barely able to spit out that they found something wrong with the baby's heart. And so like all of a sudden everything gets flipped, you know? So I'm like, I remember I just sat down on the bed and I was like, well, what did they find? She said, well, they don't really know. Like they just know it doesn't look normal. And so I'm like, what do I need to do? Do I need to come home? And she said, well, like there's nothing they can do. Cause what happens at this point is this is, your normal doctor isn't a specialist. So when they see something, they got to pass it to the expert and you got to kind of get passed down the chain to somebody who can actually give you a true diagnosis. And so their recommendation was like, we need to send you to uh, maternal fetal medicine and you need to get uh, an echocardiogram and, and have somebody really look at it. And so that was scheduled for like three days and I was coming home in two. And so I probably should just come home because I was just useless, but um, and to top it off, my wife was super, super sick with this pregnancy. Like the other one, she'd got normal pregnancy sickness, but this one was like, she was almost debilitated. Like she was so sick and then was also struggling with depression in this pregnancy. So like, I was like, man, I'm, I'm not going on the road ever again. And so we got back and, uh, if you've ever seen like those movies where like, they they're in the doctor's office and they tell them they have cancer and like you see they're like everything goes foggy for them and they're not really hearing what the doctor's saying like it's almost yeah. exact it's almost was exactly like that when we went to the maternal field medicine 
I remember sitting down, they did this echo um, where you got to imagine they're looking at a baby that's like the size of like a golf ball through your wife. And it's a miracle to me that they can see anything. Um, and so he's looking at this and he's looking on the screen and I can't, I can't make out what he's looking at. So I'm just sitting there like in a panic. Like I remember like just, I couldn't sit still as he was looking at at her and he wasn't really saying much, but um, um, I wanted to just kind of let the process happen. But I also wanted to be like, what the heck do you see? You know, like what's going on? And it was about an hour that they looked and then he came back in and he sat down and he said, uh, your baby has a heart defect that's going to require open heart surgery within the first week of his life. And I just remember like, just like falling out of my chair emotionally. Like, I just remember just like, I couldn't, I couldn't grasp it. And he was saying, um, we see some holes in his heart and we see some, uh, some irregularities between the left and right side. We can't tell if the right side is overdeveloping or if the left side is underdeveloped. Um, we just can't tell yet, but it doesn't look good. And uh, then they said, there's about a 50-50 chance um, that your son is going to have Down syndrome. As we typically see with this type of a defect, about 50% of the time we see Down syndrome being associated with it. And uh, my, ins my first question was like, is he going to die? And, uh, and so what do we do about down syndrome? Like I was already like trying to like make a plan and you can ask my wife that, that to my detriment in my life is when things feel out of control, I try and make a plan. And sometimes that works and sometimes it doesn't. And I remember the doctor saying, all right, well, you, you what's happening right now, Adam is you're in shock. And, uh, you just need to relax for a minute. We don't know what's happening. I didn't say he has Down syndrome. And I didn't say he's going to die. I'm saying he has a problem and we're going to figure it out. And like, it was just still so incredibly hard to like, to put my mind around that. Um, that and I think the first part of it was you have in your mind this plan or this idea of what, it's, what it should be like. Um, especially being my first son, I'm like, oh, cool. Like we're going to play baseball and like all those things a father and son do, you know, I'm like, okay, is that not going to happen? And you almost grieve that for a minute. And then you move on to like, okay, well, what do we got to do? And at that point we were having, you know, ultrasounds and, and echoes almost every week as he was getting bigger and we were trying to diagnose what was happening. And I remember, um, just you know, as you can imagine, just being all over the place emotionally with this. And uh, my wife is just such a rock through it all. Like I was just kind of breathing the fumes of her strength through the whole thing. But um, we got to a second specialist and it was a, a, a woman and she had such better bedside manner. I would say she was just much more compassionate where the first doctor was very matter of fact. And I don't think there's anything wrong either, either way. Yeah. Um, but I think the second one was we, we needed more of the compassion than the matter of fact. Yeah. And I remember. It doesn't surprise me a bit that the, the one with the better bedside manner is a woman. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> to say sure. that guys can't, can't be good at it. But like, I think women would just instinctively yeah, sure. try to be a little yeah, more smooth sure. there. Like I remember we sat down with her and she was looking at the notes up to this point and was like, all right, well, just so you know, like you're in one of the best states that can solve this problem. And 
we're going to get this figured out. And she gave me and my wife a hug. And I remember thinking like, is that allowed? Cause like the last guy barely would shake our hand. And, um, she asked me as she goes, dad, how are you feeling? And I was like trying so hard to keep it together. I was like, I'm just, I'm just super scared. And she, she's like, I'm going to share with you some non-medical advice. That was probably some of the best advice I've ever gotten in my life, to be honest. Um, she said, uh, a lot of times in life, what we're afraid of is what we can't see. And what, what really gives us the fear is when we have a plan and that plan starts to not have, not to go the way we thought. And so obviously it's okay to be afraid because we don't know what's going to happen, but it's super important that while we certainly should plan and be prepared, we just need to leave a little bit of room for anything to happen. And if we can allow that wiggle room just a little bit, maybe even just 10% of the plan that something might go wrong, when that unexpected thing comes into the plan, you've, you've got a little wiggle room to feel okay about it and to just at least be prepared somewhat for it. And I was like, man, you, you've actually nailed that on the head. I had this like plan of what my parenting would be with a son and what my son's life would be. And and it's not that anymore. And if I try and put myself, you know, rewind that a little bit and like, this could happen, like it started to actually feel a little bit more manageable. And uh, we, so we, we kind of went through the, the game plan as, as my wife's pregnancy progressed. And we knew for sure, we were about 75% sure that he was going to need what's called a single ventricle repair. Uh, but there was this slight chance that maybe they could save the heart and give it its normal functionality with one repair, one surgery. Um, but as we were getting to about, you know, three or four weeks away from being delivered and we were getting really good images, we had a, a conversation with uh, my son's cardiologist, who's his, his doctor still today. And I remember he sat us down with a grief counselor and told us, listen, we, we had these kind of two scenarios that we were looking at of what we think is going to happen. And we were hopeful that it was scenario A, but it looks like it's going to be scenario B, meaning your son's going to, to need to have the single ventricle repair. And what this means is he's eventually going to, to need to have a heart transplant. And as heavy as that news was, and maybe it was an element that we had kind of numbed to it a little bit, uh, we really felt that advice kind of coming into play of like, this was a possibility and certainly not the outcome we were wanting, but it's here. And we were like emotionally as best we could prepared for that. Um, and so we were ready. I mean, he was set, we, his uh, delivery was scheduled and, and that was a, a gnarly day as well. We were um, at the university of Utah hospital and um the delivery room was not your typical delivery room. It wasn't a typical like happy day, the baby's here. It was a happy and exciting time, but it was also very scary because we didn't know when he was born what his state would be. Like, did he was he gonna need oxygen right away? Is his heart gonna stop? Like, so they want to be prepared for all of that. And so he was delivered in uh in what I only could really describe as just like a really sterile environment as you think of like, I mean, you have six kids, so you your memory is probably fresher than mine is, but you know, delivery room is pretty casual and the doctors in there, the nurses are in there, and you have like a parent in there. There was about yeah. eight eight doctors in there, and I was like back in the corner, like out of the way. 
that and does then they not have, put you at ease, you know? No, dude. <laughs> no, and then, and, and then uh, to step it up a little bit, they had like what looks kind of like a McDonald's drive through window on the wall. And I was like, what's this window for? And they're like, that's where we're going to pass your baby through as soon as he's born. And we'll have a team ready. And wow. I was like, whoa, whoa. And so um, we're getting ready to push. And we had two pushes and he was here. And I remember the, the one thing that was very like sad for me was uh, right when we were about to deliver, my wife said, "Is do I get to hold him when he's born? And they said, probably not because we're going to need to rush him away. And I was just really sad about that because, you know, that's, that's a very important Great, moment, yeah. very important moment, you know, and, and uh, he, and the doctor was like, my promise is if that baby comes out and he's pink and if he's crying, I'll hand him to you. And he came out, looked perfect. He was hot pink and he slapped him right on right on my wife's chest and she got to hold him for a minute got to hold him for a minute and he was like dad get in here and cut the cord and i'm like are you sure like is this okay (laughs) and so like i got in there and like snipped it and like dove out and like they uh they said okay he's doing good he's breathing on his own they wrapped him up and handed him through this window and they opened that window up and there was about 15 people um that took the baby and just bolted off with them and the window shut and so then like, here's me and my wife and she still has to, you know, finish the delivery and, and all that. And I'm standing there like completely helpless, feel like I'm in the way, like don't know what to do with myself. And then the, the window opens back up and a doctor with uh, a mask on, she, she just pokes her head through and she's like, are you the dad? And I'm like, yep. And she, she says, stay right there. And I'm like, got it. <laughs> like, I got nowhere to go. And she ran around and grabbed me and let me come be with our son. So I like kissed my wife goodbye and said, okay, I'm gonna go, go be with our boy. And, and again, we got pulled into this room. It was a really big, really, really big room. And it was, there was nobody else in there but my son and the doctor. So it was like all this, I kind of quickly realized all this focus was on my son. And I was like, man, this is like, we're in trouble. You know, like with there's all these people are here just for my boy. And I hadn't really even gotten a good look at him yet. And like, I was just trying to keep my distance. And it was, it was crazy. The best way to describe that whole thing was just like organized chaos. Cause there were so many people there, but they were, it was like a NASCAR pit crew. Like everybody was in their spot, you know, and like focusing wow. on him and like, and I'm, I'm sure the doctor had seen this like dad in the headlights look before. But she came up to me and was like, it's okay, you, you can come up closer. And I'm like, I just don't want to be in the way. And she's like, no, like, come be, be near him. You need to be by your son and you need, to, you need to touch him and you need to talk to him. And I got to like kind of bend over and like talk to him for a minute. And, and it was really cool because he was like bawling and screaming. Yes. And the doc- doctors kept joking that we know his lungs are good because this kid was belting out like he was screaming. But it sounded so beautiful because I'm like, I didn't just didn't know what to expect. And he just looked so perfect, you know, and like he looked great. And and uh, I bent over and I was like, welcome to this world, bud. And he like turned and looked at me and like like he had like these little like swollen eyes, just kind of opened his eyes for a second. And like and then that was it. And he stopped and stopped crying. And the doctor was like, uh, babies, this brand new, they recognize they've been hearing you and mom talk for the last nine months. Like he knows who you are. And it was really cool. Like I felt, I felt this genuine, like I knew this kid and he knew me, you know, and like, it was super heavy and super scary, but like, I just had this like calm moment of like, all right, like 
we can do this, you know? And uh, they put him into like a life flight incubator. And um, they're like, we gotta, we've got to rush him over to primary children's, which was like across the street, but had like a tunnel. And they're like, we got to push him over uh, to, to primaries. And I, at this point, I'm like, I don't even know where my wife is anymore. And I'm like, is there any chance that like my wife can say goodbye to him? And they were so accommodating. They were like, yeah, we'll try and find her. And we found her in a recovery room. And he's in this like big, huge incubator. And he, he looks great, but I mean, it's, it's not where he doesn't feel like where he should be. Right. And, and the life flight lady, man, if I could ever find her again, I'd give her a kiss. Cause she said, listen, uh, I got to fill out some paperwork. It's going to take me about five minutes. Do you want me to take him out so you can hold him? And so she like opened it up and let Ty and his mom just kind of cuddle for about five minutes. And that was like, just so magical. And we have a bunch of pictures of it. And wow. it was just, it was just a really, just a really spiritual moment, a really happy moment. Like it was just kind of like the calm before the storm. And uh, so anyway, we, we took off down to primaries and uh, did a, a whole gaggle of tests. And then about six or seven hours later, they determined, yeah, we're, we need to do this single ventricle repair. And we we're going to do the first surgery in about four or five days. And so we did that first surgery and that was, um, certainly the most horrific experience of my life. Um, you get prepped for it, right? And they even let you go back and see some babies that have had uh, open heart surgery. But when you see your own kid there, it's uh, <clears throat> it's traumatizing for sure. Um, we sat through the surgery, it was about six hours and um, they give you this little beeper like from the eighties and it gives you like these text messages and it says like, Ty is on bypass. And then it will say, um, this, the procedure has done. His chest is open. He, uh, the repairs, go, the surgery is going well. And like, so they kind of give you these updates, but every time those updates would happen, it was like a wave of emotions. And to top it off that first day of his surgery was the day that we had that solar eclipse. And so it's like a day that we'll never forget. Cause we were up wow. on the roof. We were up on the roof of the hospital watching the eclipse during the moment that, uh, he was having all this surgery. And so like, it was like this bizarre day, you know, in the world and for our little world, it was just a gnarly day. Um, but what's you learn, you get kind of a crash course on the human body really fast as a, a parent with a kid in, in the hospital having heart surgery. And there's a lot of things we learned that I didn't know, like a baby, a newborn baby that ne doesn't necessarily have a specific blood type and they don't, they're, they're still developing things in their body. And one of the things they haven't developed yet is platelets or that's the ability to clot their blood. And so there's a big chance of them bleeding. Um, and so he had his blood volume replaced during the surgery. He had bled so much. And um, because their body doesn't clot, their blood doesn't clot, their body's kind of sort of defense mechanism to this all is to swell. And so they warned us that that what's going to happen is he's going to be very swollen and he'll be so swollen that by the end of the surgery, we won't be able to close his chest. And so we have to leave his chest open. And so they put, a, they put a dressing just over his chest, but it's still open. So if you pick that dressing up, you can see his lungs inflate and you can see his heart beating. And so, what? yeah. And so we walk into to the recovery room and he's, he's on a breathing machine. He's got about eight different IVs. He swelled so much that his IVs burst out of his feet. 
and they had to replace his IVs and he was like distended, like his legs and hands were stretched out and his eyes were just puffy and swollen. He looked like a toddler. He didn't look like a newborn anymore. And it was just, it was just horrific. And, and uh, it was crazy because it was like this big, uh, it was just like a, a big dance almost like the, I got to imagine that the nurse that was on his watch that day, when she got home from that shift, she had it just crashed because she was running around our son. And we got in there and she was like trying to explain what she was doing. And I was like, listen, just do your thing. Like, I don't, I don't, I can Google this. Like, I don't need you to teach me this right now. And she was like, I'm just, I'm letting you know that like for everything we give him, there's a reaction. And so we have to be prepared for those reactions. And for example, he's been on bypass for so long that we've cooled his body down. And it's almost like hypothermia that you can't just warm somebody back up. So we're slowly warming his body back up. And so we, they had these nears monitors on his head that were monitoring his brain activity because everything had slowed down. And like, we need to get his brain activity moving faster. And if, and if it doesn't, we have to give him uh, nitroglycerin, give him nitro. That's going to make his heart rate increase. And so like we, it's just, and I'm just like, Oh my gosh, you know, this is all so heavy. And so they ended up giving him this nitro because he wasn't kind of waking back up and his heart rate got so high. It was like 260 beats a minute. And uh, I'm just like, this thing's going to blow out of his chest, you know, like it was gnarly. And like, it was just, it was like about 24 hours of that. And they were saying, you know, this is the riskiest time right now of him not making it. And every hour that he's here is like exponentially increases his chances of surviving. And so that was first six or seven hours my wife and I are just sitting in the corner watching these people just bring our son back to life. And <clears throat> it was heavy. It was scary. It was like, it was every emotion you can sort of think of. And obviously we hadn't slept. I didn't know what day it was anymore. It was exhausting. And like about three or four days into it, he started, the swelling started to go down. They were able to close his chest. Um, but like, it still was like, I just, I couldn't see the scenario where we were getting out of this, you know, like it just, everything was so gnarly. Like he was just, he was just, didn't look like a newborn baby anymore. He was just cut up. He was, there was, I mean, we had bags of blood in the room. Like it was just not, nothing was normal. Right. And um, I remember the surgeon came in and this surgeon was like, literally like God to me, you know, like this guy, save my kid, you know, but was the one of the most humble humans I've ever encountered. And he came in and was like looking at my son. And whenever the surgeon would come into the room, all the doctors and nurses would kind of like slow down and it would quiet. And he would just kind of look at his artwork almost like he he would come in. I remember he would always pick tie his feet up and feel the bottom of his feet. If the bottom of the feet are getting good blood flow, that means the heart, it's pumping everywhere. And so he'd always feel his feet and he'd be like, good, good. I like this, you know? And I'm like, oh yeah, good, me too. Like, what does that mean? You know? And like, he, uh, we were talking to him and I remember I was standing there just kind of looking down at Ty and the, the surgeon was certainly like, a, he certainly was like an introvert, but tried really hard to be personable to us and to be compassionate. And he put his arm around me and he said, I know it's really hard to see it right now, but I promise you when we get through this, there's going to be a day where people are going to look at your son. They're just going to notice how cute he is and they're going to comment on that. And they'll have no idea about the battle that he fought here today. I promise you we'll get there. 
And I remember just thinking, man, man, I, I hope so, you know, and, uh, Fast forward, you know, a couple years later, like uh, actually like less than a year later, he was doing amazing. He had just had a second surgery and um, I actually had a chance to go on a work trip to London and my work as a like a uh, you're doing a good job. Let me take my wife and Ty and we we cleared we got him cleared to travel and uh we were we were in London and we we're actually we took the train from London to France. And I remember we were going through the customs in France and it was like really chaotic in the train station, like the customs station uh, in France that like, you know, everybody just seemed on edge and the line was really long. And this French customs agent came out of the door. Uh, from around the counter and barely spoke English and was like, I need to stop. And he like, oh, oh man, what's going on? He was like, I need to see this baby. And he like made us take Ty out of his car seat. And he was like, this is the cutest baby I've ever seen. And he like held Ty and he was like, this baby is beautiful. <laughs> he was like, this is a beautiful baby. And like gave us him back and then let us through. And it was like, that was like that moment that that, that surgeon was talking about. Like he just thought Ty was a beautiful baby. He had no idea what was under his shirt or, or anything. And I was like, whoa, we've, we've kind of made it here, you know, and, uh, you know, fast, fast forward to this summer surgery, I would honestly say was probably the hardest emotionally for me. Um, it was supposed to be the easiest one. We'll be in and out of the hospital in four or five days. Um, but we ended up being in the hospital for almost 40 days. Um, he actually had the surgery went really good. We came home and the next day he was like really gray in the face and was tired and was throwing up took him to get an x-ray and his lung had collapsed. And so we had to rush him back. We had to rush him back to the hospital. And he spent like another 25 days in the hospital. He had had some complications where he had a pleural effusion. He got air in his lung. He got fluid in his lung. On the out, outside of his lung, his lung kept collapsing. They had to keep replacing these tubes. And then finally, it just we were getting really, really close that they were going to have to do this procedure where they basically blow what is pretty much talcum powder inside the chest cavity. And what it does is it irritates the lining of the chest and the lung and causes it all to inflame. And that's in hopes that the chest and the lung will, will adhere to each other. And it was like supposed to be this really gnarly thing. The surgeon said the recovery is probably harder than heart surgery. He'll be in ICU. So we were just praying that we didn't have to do that. And then just one day he woke up and they're like, his lung looks perfect. And they sent us home and he's been, it's been a champion ever since he's been home since June. And like before that he couldn't walk probably more than 15 or 20 feet before he got pretty tired. Um, and he, he would walk up our stairs and he'd have to stop halfway. And you just, you just always heard him huffing and puffing. He was always just tired. And now that kid is a spaz. Like he won't, he won't sit still. He's running, he's riding his bike now. And he's just like a normal little dude, little dude. And he's just, he's happy to be here. And like, it's just really awesome. It's been this really great experience because when you go through that and you, you, you imagine having a loved one or a friend go through that, all you want to do is help. But then you're like, well, how do, how do I help somebody? And I don't, how do I ask for help as a dad? I don't know. But what I learned through that was like, you have to let people help you. And I'm very much the type of person that like, I can do it on my own. And I couldn't do any of this on my own. I could, I had to let people take my kids and take care of them. And I'd come home from the hospital at night and like, my yard was mowed and our house was clean and I don't know who did it, you know? And like, 
we came home from the hospital this time and we had a fridge and a pantry full of food and our house was clean. And I still don't, I don't know who did it. It was just people around us. And like, I could have just like, I could have just said like, don't do it. Like we're fine, but you got to let people do that. And, and when you think like, when you've helped somebody and they express a ton of gratitude to you and your first thought is like, it really was no big deal. It's totally fine. Like being on both sides of that equation of service, I really realize now, like it really is so significant to help somebody like, and it could be something so, what feels to you just so easy, like that's okay. It doesn't need, I think a lot of times we think we need to provide this profound piece of advice or this, like, if we haven't gone through it, what can we say to them? But like to comfort somebody or to just say, Hey, listen, I'm thinking about you guys or like, we're, we sure are pulling for you. Or, you know, we, we, we kissed our kids a little extra long tonight and gave them, you know, we spent a little extra, like those things have meant so much to me as a dad. And just as like a parent and as a human of like this, uh, this experience I've realized has really allowed a lot of people to be their best self around my son and around us and has allowed us to kind of be the best version of ourselves. And I see my kids who are like, I can't, I can't get them to do anything ever. It feels like, but they all kind of slow down a little bit for their little brother. They'll help him. And like, they're just, we all celebrate these little, these little things in life that like you normally don't like that are, are a miracle to us because he's here. Like we all celebrate that together as a family. And like, I'm just so grateful for that. Just these little simple things of like just our family being together in one room is like kind of all I need. You know, when it was all torn apart and I didn't know where my kids were and we were just tired and my, you know, it was this emotional thing for my, for my three-year-old and my two-year-old at the time to have to realize that, you know, we had to have this conversation with our daughters that, sometimes people die, you know, and like, that was a really hard conversation to have with my children of like, your brother might not come home. And I really learned a big lesson there too, is that our children understand a lot more than we think. And when it comes to like, when is the right time to, to have these conversations with our kids about death or about, I don't know, anything, it's when they're asking some of those questions, they're ready to, to hear the answers. And they, I can, I sense that they were understanding that something wasn't right with their brother. And I just have always been blown away at their level of understanding of, of what's going on and that life isn't, isn't perfect and that's okay. And it just has like made us all level up our, you know, our care and our, our love for each other. My kids are still all psychos and we still fight and scream, but like at the end of the day, they're, it forged a love and bond for us and the way that we, we, we view this world like in, in a very positive way. And so while, you know, I'm still super sad when I think about the battles my son will face, like I, I worry of his, of his emotions when he, there's going to be a day when he can't keep up or, you know, but again, kind of reverting back to that advice we got of like, I can make a plan as much as I want, but you know, it might not go it might not go the way I think. So leaving a little bit of room for that has, man, it's been so helpful to me just applying that to, to everything of like, we should, we can prepare and plan as best, as best as we want. I mean, take the, this pandemic, for example, like nobody really prepared for it, but you know, if I think if you leave a room, a little bit of wiggle room for something like that, unforeseeable to happen, our ability to go and, and solve it, um, is much more manageable. And that's been one of the biggest lessons that, that I've learned through this is it's being able to like, you know, like when I was a kid, I grew up in California and 
we would lived at the beach and, you know, I, I would say I'm a better swimmer than most. Um, my mom was a lifeguard and we just lived, we had a pool growing up. And so like, I was a really good swimmer and we all were, and, but there were days when the rip current would be gnarly. And my mom would always say, if you get pulled out in that rip current, I don't care how good of a, a swimmer you are, it will win. So you let it take you out as far as it takes you and you'll be able to get back in. And I remember one time we were at the beach and we were swimming and I, I didn't feel like I was in trouble, but I looked out to the shore and I realized I had been been pushed about six or 700 yards away from lined up with my parents. And I, and I could see my parents standing up looking for me and I was really far out. I didn't realize I was that deep. And I tried to swim in and I realized I couldn't swim in and I was getting really tired. And I was like, that was the first time, I never had anything like that before or after that in the water feeling out of control. Like I might, I think I might die. But I remember getting pulled and trying so hard. I swip, swapping over to swimming on my back and just trying to get some more energy. And I just, then all of a sudden I remember my mom saying, just like, go with the, go with the current. <clears throat> And I let this current take me out. It was scary because I, I got pulled out past the wave line, but then it calmed and I caught my breath and I relaxed and I was okay. And I just kind of casually swam in. And uh, my mom, like that advice saved my life. And I'm super glad I actually listened to it because I'm sure there's a million other pieces of advice my parents gave me that I ignored. But I remember swimming into the shore and I was getting super close to the rock jetty and thinking, man, if I get slammed into these rocks, I'm going to die. And so I had to like swim super hard. And I had luckily had like I'd taken my time and caught my energy. And I got back in and I remember just kind of like crawling up to the sand and sitting there and like I was so exhausted. And a lifeguard came running up to me and he was like, are you OK? And I said, I'm good. And he ran out and was saving people. And I sat there for like five or 10 minutes, catching my breath and just realizing like at a, as a young kid, maybe like 10 or 11 years old, like I almost died right now. Um, but the, the point to that story was, I think a lot of times in life, like we can, <clears throat> we can be in this current that's pulling us and no matter how hard we try to swim against it, like it's just gonna kill us. That if we do literally just go with the flow and let this thing ride, it can pull us out. And when you get to the end of it and survive it, you can look back on it and be like, whoa, like there's a lot of lessons to be learned there. And it's certainly not like I don't look at this experience and be like, I'm super glad I went through it. Like, I'm glad I had to watch my son suffer. I certainly wish there was a better way I could have learned the lesson of how important my time is and, and how meaningful my family relationships are. But that's not the point. The point is it happened and that's the lessons that I took from it. And I think if we can do that in our life or at least try and apply that, like we can apply that to almost every layer of our life and our professional life and our personal life and our relationships and our marriage. Like sometimes you have to just go with the flow and you can ask my wife, it's hard for me to go with the flow sometimes. I need a plan, I need to know what we're doing. And it's just calming when you can learn to do that. And we have to do that with my son. Like. I had to let it happen. Like I had to let this thing run its course, whatever it was going to be. And there was a very real possibility that that course was going to be his life ending very young. And it still may very well be that. It doesn't make it necessarily easier, but at least it gives you some, this ability to, to, to view it and to, to make a plan as best you can and to have some, some calm in the storm of, of, of what's going on. Wow. Dude. 
thank you for sharing all that. That is incredible. And I don't, I'm struggling to know what to say. I mean, you touched <laughs> on so many, um, topics that we could easily spend hours on, you know, kind sure. of doubling down on, but, um, man, what an experience for you. And that's so, I mean, I, in a small way, I can relate to just, you know, feeling kind of helpless as a, as a parent in the hospital, when your baby's, when your wife's having a baby and, um, you know, you're just so grateful for medical professionals who come in and know what they're doing. And like you said, like, a, a you know, it's like they, yeah. they're just professionals. That's so, that's amazing. I love your, um, attitude, you know, going with the flow and, and setting expectations on what may or may not happen. Um, I feel like one of the most helpful things in my life in the last four or five years has been being trying to be a little bit more stoic and just managing expectations as to, mm -hmm. okay, I'm going to put all into this. Let's assume that most likely scenarios. And if it's a little bit better than that, I'll call that a win, yeah. you know, um, that, that's yeah, helped sure. me and my wife be happy. Um, man, dude, yeah. this is uh, in, instantly one of my favorite episodes ever. <laughs> Great story. You're a good storyteller too, man. Um, I I couldn't have relayed all of that in um, in such a gripping manner in that amount of time. So, thank you for for oh, diving deep yeah. into all that. Well, I appreciate it. Um, so I want to ask you some sort of general life questions, and then and then uh, talk to you a little bit about your family and kind of your your parenting approach. Um, sure. So let's start with. Um, about a book you've given away as a gift um what was it and and uh, why did you like it yeah um so i i think early on in, in business school when i was like i went into business school like thinking i was going to learn how to everything about how to run a business and really it's like it gives you a good idea of like having a business acumen but like it certainly doesn't give you that at least what i thought and then, so then i thought like man i need to go like read a bunch of books and i don't know i got kind of like disenfranchised with reading these like success books because it was all kind of like the same thing to me it was like we kind of like had a good idea and got lucky and what i realized in like what were the common threads amongst a lot of these entrepreneurs that i was reading about was like most of them weren't super like they weren't like not everybody's elon musk right where they're like not only do i see a better way to do this i see a new way to do it most people are like they're good at what they do and they're like i could probably do this on my own right and then and then they have some courage to go and try and do it um but one of the things i kind of saw was a um was a common thread amongst a lot of these entrepreneurs was their ability to adapt to change um and when you look at like, I've been a part of several startups. And when you think of like the MVP or your first minimum viable product that you present from a code standpoint to a um, feature standpoint is almost nothing of what it, it ends up being. And that means there's so many iterations and changes that happen to that product. And you have to be a willing and able to do that. You just have to be, be content with the fact that what we're doing today is gonna be different tomorrow and that's okay. 
And mm. so I kind of like removed myself from reading a bunch of books and really loved to just like, I dove deep into podcasts and just love hearing entrepreneurial stories. But when I was at uh, Boostability, um, I came there because they had acquired uh, a company I was a part of. And I originally came there to just kind of transition that team and to not be there very long. I ended up being there for about five years. And um, while I was there, I started with this team of employees that they had bought in, in the acquisition, about 20 people, and ended up just kind of taking on more and more teams. And I had about 130 people that were on my team um, towards the end. And a lot of changes were happening, as you can imagine, through that. Our business was growing, or things were shifting. And I, I read this book. It was just an easy read of Who Moved My Cheese? And if you've read that book, it's just a, it's it's more cliche than anything, but it's about these, they, they're running through a maze and they get kind of conditioned of, of where they need to go through the maze to get their cheese. And then eventually the cheese supply starts to go away and they're almost entitled to the cheese being there. And when they get there, rather than going and solving, figuring out where the cheese could be like they did originally, it just kind of started starving because they were just expecting somebody to put the cheese there. They were, they were no longer going out and looking for it. And it has a lot of parables to, to adapting to change. And so whenever I would hire or promote somebody or hire a new manager or a new leader, I would always encourage them to read that book um, of always kind of looking for or, or looking for change or looking for just because we have something working now, be prepared for it to not work tomorrow, um, that, that sort of mentality. So that's probably one I've recommended the most to people. Tell me about a purchase of $100 or less that has most positively impacted your life in the last six to 12 months. Yeah, this one is, um, is it's kind of silly, um, but also I think if you wanted to draw some parable out of it, you could. So I'm into cycling and uh, that's probably like the one thing I love to do that it kind of is like a personal thing that uh, I don't have a lot of friends that ride. It's something I love to do on my own. And um, cycling is, it's just a one, oh, I've never been like a gym rat. I hate lifting weights. I've never been a team sports guy. Like I don't, I don't, I don't really even watch a ton of sports. And so cycling to me was like the one exercise or sporting activity that was like, actually is fun to do. Not like I have to go to the gym today. Like I thought I, I, I started falling in love with it. And that's in a lot of ways it, it saved my life. I, gotten a really good shape from cycling, but cycling is so, it's such an expensive sport. Like it is so expensive. Um, and so like, if you, it, it's this catch 22, because like, if you start to get into it and you want to get good at it, just like most things, like you got to buy the good equipment. And, um, so I had, a, I have a really nice bike and I've had pretty good equipment, but this last, this last summer I bought, um, new, new spandex, like just the bottoms and they were a hundred bucks, a hundred bucks for one pair. And I was like, dang, man, these are expensive. It's like, you can get a pair on Amazon for 20 bucks. And these ones just had like more cushion in the butt. And like, you're sitting on that bike seat. It's not a whole lot of comfort and you want to go on a super long ride. Like you start to feel it, you know? And, and so I like read all these reviews and I was like, whatever, I'm just gonna bite the bullet. I'm gonna buy these super nice spandex and I bought them and I went on like a 50 mile bike ride and I felt amazing. And like, I was like, dang, that was like worth it. And like, it actually like increased my uh, enjoyment level of riding. Cause I would, 
I just kind of was content with the idea that like, it's fun, but it's just going to hurt, you know, and you just kind of kind of fight through the pain and makes you tough. But I was like, oh yeah, I can actually focus on getting stronger or riding farther because my freaking hmm. butt doesn't hurt. And so yeah. like, it wasn't, it wasn't like this profound purchase, but certainly something that made this thing I like doing uh, more enjoyable. It's funny when you have that experience in life where it's like, there's one school of thoughts like, Hey, it's just gonna, it's gonna suck, but that's how we do here. And we're gonna rah, rah, you know, that's, what, that's how you do it. But then sometimes you find a little, uh, I don't want to call it a shortcut or just maybe another, an alternative method of uh, procedure that, you know, faster, cheaper, easier, more, conv more comfortable. <laughs> it's like, all right. For sure. Awesome. I think, I think it's really, one of the, really like, appreciate it. Yeah. And I think, I think actually like in, in business, at least in my experience, it's certainly a counterfeit. I think a lot of us have of like, like, I, I think you could certainly get yourself into trouble if you just challenge the status quo of every single process, like some things just work and you don't need to fix them, but some things like, you know, why are we doing this? Well, because that's how it's always been done. Well, is that the right way to do it? Or is that the best way to do it? I don't know, but it's the way we've done it. Like I've challenged that a lot of times in, in companies I've worked at and almost always has been the answer. Like, why are we doing it this way? It's just the way we've done it. Um, and when you can be in an environment that they then say, figure out a better way for us to do it. I think that's when you can have a really like magical experience and finding new ways to do things that sometimes might be might be worse, might be better, but uh, at least you can either validate what you're doing was right or, or see a better way of doing it. And, and But it's more common than I thought of just, we, we do things this the way we've done it. And it seems like the people who are pulling ahead of the pack aren't really like, aren't doing anything more profound than anybody else. Maybe their idea isn't even better than the other guys. They're just, they're just solving those micro things better than we are. Hmm. Hey, before we shift gears, is it, is it like on, to wear shorts when you're cycling do you just does it cause will will, will people chafe if they're not wearing spandex or like because i just have a hard time getting into spandex like in public here's the, here's the, here, yeah here's the thing dude like when i first started riding i wore shorts and got like made fun of in the community like you don't like you don't take yourself uh -huh. serious and they don't take you serious. The first time you put it on, you're like, okay, like everybody can see me right now. Like this is weird. <laughs> but, but also like spandex is like it's like uh, the, when you have the bib where it's shorts that go up over your shoulders, like a wrestling onesie, like it pulls all your fat in. It pulls all your fat in. So you actually look way slim. And so you actually feel like I feel way more, I feel way more confident in my body when I'm wearing spandex, ironically, because it like, it like pulls me in and then you zip the top up and it like pulls the love handles in and you feel fit. But like, it certainly does improve the ride. Like um, inside, inside your, um, uh, I mean, your your seat by your bike post is narrow, dude. It's like the size of your butt crack, and so like you kind of develop mm -hmm. your sit bone right there where you sit. Like you you literally start to develop like almost like a callus there. Like you get like the first couple rides of the season, like you're just sore for a couple of weeks. Then you kind of like strengthen that muscle. But so any any added improvement is is so noticeable. And so like yeah, for sure, like chafing and like it's just it. It's pretty for the casual rider. It probably doesn't make a difference. But what I've noticed in cycling is anything over about 25 miles, I start to start to notice. It's almost like you imagine having a tiny little pebble in your shoe. Mm -hmm. Like uh, walking a mile, you probably won't feel it. But at the end of a marathon, you probably have a hole in your foot. You know, like it starts yeah. to feel that way. Cycling, like probably two years into cycling, I finally like bit the bullet and took my road bike into a, a professional cycling team. And they had me, um, 
probably for about two and a half hours, they fit the bike to me. And so anything that had an adjustment was adjusted. And I have um, my ankle and my right foot rolls in and I always end up having hip problems. So they put like a cleat inside my right foot and just adjusted everything. And I noticed after about 25 or 30 miles, my neck, no matter how much I stretch, no matter how good my posture was, I would get a cramp right, right at the bottom of my neck after about 30 miles. And it was because my hip was sitting weird because my ankle was rolling in. And so they adjusted my seat, they adjusted my pedal, they adjusted my my handbrakes, all this stuff, these little micro, micro adjustments. I mean, we're talking like like an eighth of a turn of an Allen wrench where th those were the types of adjustments we were making at the end. And then the very next day I went and rode a hundred miles and had zero pain. And I was like, holy cow, like wow. that's 200, 200 bucks I ever spent. Who's doing and this so, for like, you? This is like the so bike shop? No, it's so the bike shop will put your bike together usually. And they usually just slap it together. Um, it's, this was a, a, um, a company called plan seven endurance coaching. And so they are, they're like a, a, a cycling team, but then you can get coaching from them. I'm like, you go to them and say, listen, I can't get past hundred miles or my hip hurts, or I want to increase my, they'll give you like cycling plans or, you know, they're, they're just, they're pros that help you get good at wow. cycling. And I think the biggest obstacle of why people quit is because they don't, Put the time into like getting past that 25 mile mark and realizing you have to step up you have to improve your equipment or improve your process or improve what your approach to this is like you have to adjust something and either commit to leveling up or commit to staying at that 25 mile range where you're not going to start falling hmm. apart interesting when you mentioned showing up with shorts in front of the spandex crowd uh it reminded me of one time in college, there was a um, ping pong tournament, and I was like, uh, "I'm, I'm pretty, pretty good at ping pong. I can usually, um, I rarely get blown out, and I often win. You know, playing just with yeah. like random people you run into. And then I showed up at this ping pong tournament, and I was like, one of the only people that didn't have their own paddle. And that's kind <laughs> of like a, location. Like, if you don't have a paddle, you're really not any any right. good and i quickly right. learned there's levels to this and got smoked i mean <laughs> and then the guy that right after the guy that beats me uh he turns around and gets smoked himself by someone and <laughs> i was like oh, man funny. this is uh this is a lot more serious than just screwing around in somebody's basement for sure um all right hey i've got i came up with a new question it hit me in the shower today i think i'm gonna start asking people about it and uh oh tell me if you if anything comes to mind so when you were a teenager, did you have an authority figure? It could be like like a teacher or a principal or a coach or a grandparent. Their experience with you did not expect Adam Young to become a successful adult. Yeah, I would say probably at one point in my life, um, ninety nine percent of the people I knew probably thought that. <laughs> um, um, they're, they're like to give to give you a. Uh, perspective like the idea of going to college was laughable to me like there's no way I'm not I'm just I'm I was convinced that I was not a smart person that but I could figure stuff out and like college wasn't for me it just wasn't on the book so like you know you realistically should start prepping for uh college like in middle school right by middle school I was like dude if I make it to 10th grade I'll be stoked, you know, like, so like, I just, it wasn't, my ambitions weren't super high uh, academically, 
But like, I have to back up a little bit and say, uh, opposed to the people who thought I was going to be like dead or in prison, uh, my father like genuinely believed I could be anything I wanted. Like, I think every parent's like, you can go out and do anything you want. And like, for the most part, you're like, yeah, you have to say that because you're my dad. But like, I feel like my dad genuinely believed that. Like he, he saw, and I think to this day still sees that in me, just sees that like all the, the potential I have and can do. And so my dad's always been like my biggest fan, always. And so I've always, always been in my corner, even when like I probably didn't deserve it. But there was uh, one time in particular, I was in about, I was in seventh grade, which was a particularly uh, a hard year for me. And like, to give you a little background, like it was a hard time for me just in my life um, at home. My home life wasn't super great. Um, and I just was, you know, you imagine being in seventh grade where you're like, you're like 12 or 13, you're starting to like develop hormones and like, don't know what to do with yourself and like really need guidance and help in your life. And, and I just didn't know where to look for that. Like, um, or I didn't really know how to say I didn't know what I was doing or that I needed help. I didn't have the tools to, to even recognize that like I was, I, I needed some, some help and guidance. And anyway, I was like, just not doing good in school. And like in seventh grade, in middle school, it's like, you, I mean, they, they pretty much pass you by default, but like, I was like in serious danger of getting held back because I just wasn't doing anything. And so they, they called my parents and they're like, listen, we need to have like a conference um, and we need to have your parents come in and we're going to have the principal and every one of your teachers, we're all going to sit down and we're going to figure out what's going on. And my dad is like, very, my dad just retired this year. He, he worked as a, like a commercial tile contractor. So he laid tile his whole life, um, worked for like big companies like Disney and uh, like Disneyland and uh, Ontario Airport, like big, big commercial jobs in Southern California. And my dad's just a, he's a hardworking uh, blue collar dude. Like he's just, he works with his hands and he gets the job done and nobody owes him anything. And he's just a, a no nonsense guy when it comes to, to getting things done. And he's also not the guy that's going to put a suit on or, you know, he just, he's a, he's a jeans and t-shirt kind of guy. So anyway, and my dad was hardworking, right? And so we have this conference and I'm just like, my dad and I didn't really talk much about it, but that he was gonna go and he had to take a day off of work. And our family, we, we didn't have a ton of money. And so like the idea of my dad having to take a day off of work like was costing my dad money, but this was like super important to him and he was gonna come to it. And I remember sitting in the office, um, waiting for my dad to get there and he walked in and my dad looked GQ, man. He walked in in a suit in like a press shirt, a nice tie. Like I've never seen my dad looking so sharp. You would have thought my dad was like an investment banker or something. Like I, I was mm. expecting to come in. I was expecting to come in in his work boots, you know? Right, right. And he, he came in clean shave and slick. Like he was taking this serious. And uh, um, I didn't know, like at this point, was this going to be everybody against me? But very early on, my dad made it clear that he was like on my side here. You know, and I, that was a very calming and re relieving feeling as we went into this like tribunal, like with my with my school that like at least I had my dad in my corner, you know. And so we're sitting here and it basically felt like a rag fest on me. Like 
how bad I am. And I was just like, just deflated. And I remember my math teacher and I just like, I sucked at math. And because math is a thing I, I, in college, I did, I did pretty good in math. And I think the reason is math is a thing that you can't BS, you know, like you can, you can BS science and like you can get a pull a grade off, but like you either know it or you don't in math. And so like, I wasn't willing to put the work in. So it just was content with the idea that I was just was dumb at math. I just was not willing to try was the reality. And I had a smart mouth and like talked back. And like, I had this one teacher that I really liked and I was getting a good grade in his class. And I remember he was like, oh, Adam does pretty good in my class. And I realized though, that like he gets the work done and he gets super bored. And then he starts tearing my class apart. Like he starts pulling other people out of their work, starts distracting it. And then my math teacher was like, well, all I get is that version of Adam. I must get him right after your class because he comes in and just tearing my class apart. And like every one of my teachers was like, yeah, I just like can't get the kid to, to do his work. I can't get him to listen. I can't get him to do anything. And the principal was like, Adam, you know, we're really just, we, we really think if you don't get this together, you're going to end up in jail or dead. And my dad stood up. Like I remember, and my dad's like almost six foot seven. So my dad's a tall, wow. big, big guy. And so my dad stands up and like, I just remember looking up and like, he looked like a mountain. So I'm like sitting in the chair and my dad stands up and he goes, you know, it's people like my son who, when people get them wrong, they go out and they become tight. They become titans of industries and um, they do amazing things despite you. Um, and I, he's like, I think that Adam, if he's given the right environment, will thrive. And I think you're, you're, you're writing him off before you should. And I was like, whoa, like that was, that was pretty rad of my dad to like, stand up to these people and it totally changed the narrative of the conversation like we we're all like it made it positive but i remember it being really funny actually the principal goes listen we think adam can do that too but we just gotta get him out of freaking seventh grade <laughs> like let's just focus on before we focus on on being a titan of industry or the president let's just get him through like seventh grade algebra um but like that was like actually a very like that moment was like a catalyst for me um, in yeah. realizing like I had somebody in my corner who like genuinely believed it and like declared this to people that like maybe there was some truth in that and like ended up, you know, like doing just fine in school, like went through high school, no problem. Like I didn't graduate with a super high GPA. It was still very much like I didn't really, I didn't really care to get a 4.0 like i'm gonna do what i gotta do to like get a degree a diploma yeah. and I'm, I'm gonna peace out but i ended up you know going to college and and being excellent grades and i've had a super successful career and my dad was over at the house just a couple weeks ago and uh, i had my diploma like framed and i just i don't have it hanging in the house my dad's like why don't why don't you hang this and I was like, honestly, dude, I don't really care about my college diploma. And he was like, man, I wish I could. I want to send this back to your middle school. I want to send this back to, one, to every single one of us teachers who like thought you were a bum. I wanted to send that to them. I was like, go yeah. ahead. Like they can have it. <laughs> like I don't really care about them or it. But it was just cool. Like yeah. even to this day, like my dad and I have like weekly phone calls. And he's still like, like my dad is just very much like a, you know, he, he, he worked for a union and he had a pension and he's retired now and that worked out great for him and I'm super proud of him. And so when he talks to me about, when I talk to him about the idea of like, 
like leaving a, a established company to go to a startup or I'm going to go try and figure this thing out or just something I'm working on in my, in my career um, in business development. A lot of times it's, it's speculative stuff that he's just like, man, how do you have a stomach for it? Like, I, like just the unknown part of it. And I'm like, I don't know. I'm sick in the head, but like, I'll tell him about an yeah. accomplishment. I'll tell him about an accomplishment or something that a deal that I closed or just something happening. And he's like, always just so proud and blown away. Cause it's just, it's just not something that he like, I didn't grow up with. Like my dad was this like businessman and like, you no, know, I, I followed in his footsteps. Like I just kind of tried to carve my own path, like kind of despite what I thought and my other people thought, but like really had my dad in my corner to really genuinely believe until to a point that like, once I really believed, actually I, I am smart. Like, I think I can figure this out. Like, I think once you can have that confidence, you really can kind of figure anything out. And like, it starts with having at least somebody there that can advocate for you when you have so many people from an outside point of view who maybe don't believe in you or think you can do it. Yeah. That's so interesting because I can relate to that uh, quite a bit. My dad also, you know, worked with his hands doing construction and, and repairs. And um, my brother was um, similar to you in regards that he's, a very smart person, but the school environment and, and the um, methods of, of measurement and everything didn't just didn't line up with um, the way he operates. And so he, he always struggled in school. But now as adults, it's like I, school was always easy for me. I, re- I didn't have to try much, tended to get good. I, just my brain's wired up to be like pretty good test taker, like even if I didn't apply myself that well. And um, and, but as adults, I'm like, dude, my brother's probably smarter than me. He knows so many things <laughs> about so much. And he's his brain. He knows how to like fix stuff that he's never even seen. I mean, just so, so many things he can do where I'm like, I'm, I'm the dummy. I mean, what kind of system <laughs> do we have set up for like waiting people out when it's like, we just have this like cheap and, and simple way to weed people out through schooling that isn't effective, you know? Anyway, for sure. For sure. Um, so we have, uh, you've got a hard stop in about 10 minutes, right? I'm actually, that moving meeting got moved like uh, another hour okay. from now. So I'm, I'm still good to go. Well, shoot, man. <laughs> <laughs> um, all right. I'll ask you a couple more and then we'll jump to uh, family. So um, what is something that makes you really happy and not enough people are trying it? Um, I think, uh, I think especially like, as we, I explained earlier that like in the last couple of years, I've definitely been, uh, much more conscious of my time and how I spend it. Um, I think, I don't know if my family would necessarily agree with it, but for me, like I want to have as much time optimized being with my family. And so all the things that I do outside of being with my family need to be super important to me. Um, but as I've gotten older and, uh, been married longer, I realized that it's just as important to just have something that is just for you that like that you do that focuses on you, even if it's just like reading a book or, or going to the gym, but just something that is, is it's not selfish to take time for yourself. And I don't think, I don't think enough of us do that because we, we feel guilty or, I mean, parenting and, and, married life is is time consuming and you need to be 
you need to be fully on to to be good at it i think and yeah um i think when i'm when i'm when i'm being my best self as an employee or as uh, as a father as a husband it's when i've been able to to have some something on my own that i'm working on that m- makes me better and for me it's, it really has been um cycling where i can i can get i'm not racing against anybody but myself and honestly i feel like once I've been riding my bike consistently for about six weeks, there, it's it's not a really challenging thing for me to just to go ride. Like I can go, I could go ride thirty or forty miles a day and be just fine. I can just come home and take a shower. Um, so it's hard for me to go. Like I have to go even farther, you know, to really feel like I'm getting worn out. But it's more of like a mental thing for me, where I can feel like I can, I can just go out and work hard and sweat. But I also like. It's one of the few elements in my life where I feel like I can kind of turn the outside world off. I feel like sometimes I'm a I'm I'm stuck inside my own head a lot of the time, and I'm just I I I, I spin my wheels. I have a, I I have a hard time sleeping every night because I have a hard time just winding my brain down. But when I'm on my bike, I feel like I can clear it out, and I can mm-hmm. think about one one solitary thing. And I just feel like I solve a lot of problems in my life on my bike. And I love in the summertime to go out in the morning when it's like it's still dark, but it's still warm. And I can just, I can kind of ride into the sunrise and like, just kind of like, I don't know. It's just this, I feel like everything moves a little bit slower and quieter in the early morning. And I just love to be up during that time. If it's not on my bike, I just love to be up before people are, before there's a ton of cars on the road or before there's, you know, the hustle and bustle and just have this like moment to myself. And if it can be on my bike, that's where I prefer it. But I just like to, before I start my work day, read something or do something and and recently like i never thought i would say this in my life but i've actually like really started becoming interested in meditating and not like ringing a, a bell and like sitting there but just like just having a moment maybe 10 or 15 minutes where i just try and focus on not having anything in my brain which is really really hard to do but i feel like before i, I start a day i try and just have at least five or ten minutes where like i just kind of can just clear the clear my brain out as best as I can and then fire off. And I feel like I have such a better day when I can do that. And I can certainly feel it when I don't like when I, when I don't, when I don't have that, um, that routine in my life, like I feel like I start to, I start to overlap things and it starts to feel a little bit more in chaos and actually adjusting to working from home. And like, was a hard thing for me of like, okay, like when does work stop, you know, and like, and when is it time yeah. for my family? Like that was a hard adjustment. So like it actually became more important that I like did those things. And it's, it, 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 uh, has made things a lot, a lot easier, manageable, a lot more manageable in, in my life. And I just think a, a lot of us just don't, don't take time to do that. Like we feel, I certainly felt like guilty of like, time away from myself is time. Like I'm sacrificing time yeah. that I could give somewhere it, it, else or to someone else. Totally. Because it, you know, you, you have to sharpen the saw, but at the same time it's like, okay, well, if I go spend an hour on me, that's an hour I'm not with the family or I'm not helping out my wife. Who's, you know, overworked and underpaid as a stay at home mom. I mean, yeah, for sure. you know, it's like the, the kids are, there's relentless. It's always like, daddy, 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 I want to do it. But, um, but if, you know, I'm not advocating for uh, spending four hours a day sitting around away from the family, but like, you know, taking half an hour or an hour, whether it's a, a walk or a bike ride or, yeah. or reading or wh- whatever your thing is, yeah. 
then that that makes the rest of your time better. So yeah, I, and I think totally I think what I have you. what I have a hard time with when people just say, "Gosh, I just I just don't have time," I just might want. That's a lie. Like that's that's not not actually true. Like, like you, when you you read any, any business book or economics book, there's the idea of opportunity cost. This idea of giving something up for something else, right? And and when people say I don't have enough time, it's that that's what that's what you're dedicating to that thing you want to do. Like if you if you and if you think about that, like if you think like in the in the Old Testament, like when they were sacrificing the basically the runoff of their flock. That's not really like a sacrifice. Like this is just the 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 what I have left over. But when they were commanded to give the first of their flock, like to give the best of it, like that was the sacrifice. And when you think of our time in in that sort of a sacrifice, whether it's in our marriage or anything, if I have time at the end of the month, we'll go on a date. Versus like we're going on a date Friday, and we're figuring out what we need to do to get to Friday to go on a date to be together. Or like I gotta get this report done. Like if I have time, I'll get to it. Like that's probably the effort that's going to go into it. But hmm. you know, w- when we look at our our time and how we spend it, like for me, I I really started squeezing that out of in the morning. Like what's an extra hour of sleep? Like what can I accomplish with seven extra hours a week if I just woke up one hour earlier? Or like rather than sit there and surf on my phone for thirty minutes before I fall fall asleep, like what can I do there? There's just that's the opportunity cost. And there's a lot of hours in the day. And I think I, it's just a cop out to me when like, I just don't have time. Like, are you one, A, are we maximizing our time? And are we, is there stuff <laughs> that we could just, uh, can we just like, can we just weed out that's kind of dumb? And that's the hardest part is just like, I feel like a lot of times there's just like fluff in my, in my day. And I'm like, I didn't have time to do that. Like I did, I just like sat on my phone for 40 minutes looking at nothing, you know, like that, I think that's, that's the bigger, um, the bigger thing, we, we, it's easier for us to to make excuses why we can't do something than to make a sacrifice to go into it. I feel like, Adam, you've become one of those savages when someone's like, oh, I'm too busy. And you're like, are you too busy or do you, are you bad at managing your time? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> uh, um, so, all right. Uh, tell me something you've changed your mind on in the last five years. Yeah. Um, I would say um, I used to just look at life um, not so much like right or wrong or white or black, but like I just look through through the lens of my own beliefs or my own what I thought was right and wrong. And that's how I made a decision. And I feel like that's a perfectly fine thing to do. But I, I realized like I became a I think a better person or a better friend when I genuinely um, tried to have more empathy in my life and really look through it the way somebody might be viewing this to at least see how they're seeing it. And in genuinely trying to do that, I realized in a lot of ways where I looked at something as like, here's the answer or here's uh, the wrong answer that there's actually a lot of times multiple right answers to a problem. And mine might not be any better than than yours. They both might get us to the same outcome just fine, and that's okay. And um, and it's broadened my my um, my my view on the world and my view on people. And I think it's really strengthened my relationships. I've I've, I've when I look on like the relationships I have, like I'm actually really proud of the I, of the fact that I have friends that like probably disagree on points of view more than we 
more than we agree, but are genuinely great friends of mine that we don't have to, that, that showed me we don't yeah. have to agree perfectly with everybody about everything to respect each other and to have a friendship. I think that's the human experience is like to be able to have a meaningful relationship with somebody you don't see eye to eye on, but you can, it, it strengthens the things that you do. And, and I don't know, like I, that, that was something that like, I think when I look at politics, like I'm definitely not like this super right wing extremist. And I'm also not like a hardcore liberal. I think that there's, there's truth and value in both. I certainly probably tend to lean one way or the other, but like, uh, I think it's just become silly. And you look at the media today, I think politics is at all time, like low scum, but like you look on one news and they're like, we see no wrong in this guy. You look on the other channel and they're like, this guy's terrible. And it's like, we're only looking through it through our, our point of view. And like, surely there's some good in both of these sides. Yeah. Like it just makes you seem so narrow minded. It's like how, how, in what other places are we doing this in our life? And I think when I really kind of realized that, that like, Hey, like Adam, I think you might, it's possible that you might be just getting it completely wrong, but this person's got it right. Maybe you should like wise up and like just being willing to be wrong has like made me so much smarter. I think in the last couple of years mm. of just like being like being okay with being wrong and, and being hungry to find the answer from wherever I can find it. Yeah. That's funny when you mentioned the um, different angles of uh, political stuff. I one thing that my kids have loved lately is we'll uh, when we're anytime watching TV, I guess we're in a North Carolina is a battleground state um, and politically and um, our swing state, I guess I should say, and um, really competitive race right now for the Senate. And so we get a lot of commercials versus Cal Cunningham and you can pick one, one or the other, let's just say Tom Tillis. And I'm like, see guys, um, he the one commercial comes on and my my three older kids are like uh like oh wow he looks like a good guy i'm like yep based on this uh commercial you can tell he is saving the world <laughs> and then the next commercial like immediately after you know on you're watching youtube there's like two 15 second commercials back to back next one's like yeah he is the worst person you have ever heard of <laughs> Yeah. It's like so it's funny to just expose them to like, okay, this is a prime example of you really can't believe anything you hear or see just at face value, you know? Yeah. Um, kind of a interesting Yeah, I feel like somebody kids. I feel like like if you want to measure like am I a master teacher or or of anything, like explain politics to like a five year old and if they if they can walk away not confused, then you're a master by like I, my kids trying to ask me these questions, like, why are they do like, why are they being so mean to each other? Like, I don't know. Like, like it's incredibly difficult to explain why things are the way they are to a kid and to an adult. But yeah, it's, yeah. it's and the, the downside to our, our ability to consume information is it's being able to consume correct information is, is even more difficult. Yeah. One other thing I wanted to touch on you um, made me think of when you were talking about your mindset and, and um, it, it is that you're not the type of earlier you mentioned when you're relaying the story about your son that you are not the type of person to ask other people for help. And um, I'm I know for my. I picture um, like I don't mind helping other people, but like if someone helps me, I feel like I'm. I have to return the favor and, and like, it's a, I don't want to be in debt to someone, but I'm okay with, you know, 
other, you know, lending more to someone than they've given to me. But when you had that experience of the kid, coming home from the hospital and someone has cleaned your house or stacked your pantry on and you have no idea who it is, like, what's that like as a um, someone who likes to be the one leading or the likes to be the one who's helping and, and not necessarily the one receiving the help? Does that change? Because you don't know who you're indebted to in a sense, right? Yeah. I mean, like, that's yeah. a weird feeling. It's like yeah. anyone. It could be the dude that you're mad at, or you know what I mean. Like that someone you really, you genuinely don't know. Who, who, it's just like I, I'm indebted to the world in a sense. Yeah, I, th I think that's actually what it feels like. Is like I, I, when you think like like for in, in primary children's hospital, they have this like donor board, and there's like Bob Johnson gave eight hundred fifty thousand dollars. Like, dang, dude, Bob hooked primaries up, and then you'll see like. A three million dollar anonymous donation you're like dang man i want to know who anonymous is like who's that person that they threw down and didn't care who knew and i think that's like i think <clears throat> what's <clears throat> what's more genuine or not even genuine i mean there's those both of those donations obviously are, can be genuine but i think what's amazing to me is when somebody does it with zero percent desire to be recognized for it i think each of us whether we want to admit it or not like we like doing we like doing things for people because we want them to know we care and we want them to know that we're good people like and that's that's good like that's a good thing but like i think we're like the real like christ-like attributes or just being a genuinely good human come because you just want you want to do good and you want you want to do good because that's the world you want to live in and for me, like realizing that I'm surrounded by people who love me so much that they don't care that like I praise them or know that, like it makes me just like want to be good to other people because I'm not, I don't necessarily owe this to everyone, to anyone, but I probably should be good to, to everyone. And so it makes me kind of just want to try a little bit harder for people maybe that I don't know, or maybe they, they didn't. And I think the reality is kind of back to my, my point I was talking about that was like, it feels so impactful to be served and like even when it's meaning not that big of a deal like you were saying a minute ago like somebody helps you like you feel like man i gotta go help that person again but when you like it doesn't feel like when you help them like didn't feel like it was that big of a deal to help that like they probably felt that way too and i think that's the the value in letting people help you and one, like you're gonna realize, like, okay, like you're gonna, you're gonna, when somebody wants to help you or do something good for you, whether it's in work or home or your life, like, like you see the good in that person, and they're, they're, and you, you, you start to like have more love and compassion for that person. And if you really let it affect you, like you probably want to go pay, repay the favor to them or to somebody else. And like, like I think of like when my mom passed away in 2009. Uh, she actually committed suicide and I had never gone through anything like that, uh, nor had I known anybody who knew anybody who committed suicide. So it could feel like a super lonely, lonely little environment to be like, to be in. And it really was. But what it did for me was made me like hypersensitive to, to people around me, like just in, in the general sense when somebody lost somebody. I realized one that like we don't need to perfectly relate to somebody to be there for them. Certainly learned that with my son. Like I don't know any other friends or family that have had a son have open heart surgery, 
so many people that I know have been there for me and were there for me and not because they had gone through it. They just were there. So when we have these like tragedies happen to us or bad things happen, we can either be like, man, nobody knows what I'm going through and feel super bitter. And like the world owes me this, like nobody gets me. Or you can be like, this was super hard. And I know what those feelings felt like to be alone. And I want to go be there for somebody who might be going through something and be upfront to them of like, I don't know what you're going through, but I've, I've felt pain in my life and I want to be there for you. And I always try and stop people when they're like, I think you even did a little bit of it. Like I can kind of somewhat relate with having a kid. And I think when I tell my stories and people are like, it's nothing like what you went through. Like, I think that's like our, our tendency, but like we all have our boat to row in this life and we all go through hard things. And it's certainly not like a, I've suffered more than you. I think that's like a really bizarre mentality that some people get in of like my suffering is the greatest. So I'm the biggest victim. Like, yeah, I think we can, we can just be there for each other and have never gone through the same thing. Like that being a good friend, isn't the being the most related. That's a boring group of friends. If you're all gone through the same thing, like there's something unique and fun <laughs> about, about having friends who are different and have gone through things. And then when you share things together, it makes it much more meaningful, but like that's the fun of relationships is, is thriving on your indifferences. Yeah. Otherwise, it's like, yeah, well, my son had surgeries, not three. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Uh, um, what do, uh, so you mentioned you have three kids. Um, tell me a little about your family, anything maybe we uh, should know that you haven't touched on yet, and um, a favorite vacation you've taken. Um, uh, yeah, anything on that that topic? Yeah, so... Yeah, like I said earlier, I've got I've got three kids, um, a daughter, Brooklyn, another daughter, Harper, and my son, Ty. And it's so funny to me, um, like we live in the same house and have pretty much the same experiences together. But those three kids, you would have thought they came from different planets, let alone the same family. Like just it's, it's really it's really fun to watch my kids develop their own personalities and their likes and dislikes like. My eight-year-old is like, she's just a naturally sweet person. And like, I personally, like my, me and my wife is this way, like my happy place is at home. Like, I don't, I like to go and hanging out with friends and going to parties and stuff. But like, I, like at the end of a vacation, I love to be at home. And where my daughter, she's like, she's, her happy place is around people and with her friends and at parties and taking care of people. And like, she's just naturally a caring person. And her biggest fear in life is getting in trouble. Like I can, I've never been able to count to three with the, I'm counting to three threat. Like I can make it to one and she's like, I'm so sorry. I'll stop. Like, like she just like, doesn't want, she's a, she's a people pleaser. But then there's like my, my five-year-old where like, she is so stubborn that like, I think like looking through a father's lens, like I think she can really be a very powerful woman and she can go and do great things or she's going to be an ax murderer. Like, I don't know which one it's going to be yet, <laughs> but like, like she is like just so stubborn and determined right or wrong. Like if she doesn't want to do something, I could bribe her with ice cream, donuts, just treats. She's like, I don't care. I don't want it. I don't care. Count to three. She'll, I'll count. She's like, I'll count to three for you. Like, I don't care. Let's count to five. Like, she does not care. Like when she doesn't want to do something when she does, but it's cool because when she does want to do something, like she goes all in on it. And it's really cool to see, like she plays soccer this year. We put her in it and she's like super committed to it. And like, it's determined to score goals and it's determined to get better and like, doesn't want to quit it. And it's like really awesome to see. 
And then like my son, like, I feel like he's a, he's a seasoned soul in a young boy's body. Like he's been through stuff that like a lot of people never will go through. Um, and I, I don't know, part of me, I feel like he gets that, you know, like he's, I feel like he has this just genuine appreciation for life, even though he doesn't even understand that he's almost died or that his life is fundamentally shifted. He just yeah. always has this like happy to be here mentality. Like it's so, so fun to see, like, he wakes up in the morning and he always, Hey guys, like every morning. And like, he's just like, <laughs> like, or we'll be eating dinners. Like dinner's good. Like, he's just like, he's just like, <laughs> he's like, he's stoked on life. And like, That's it's just really, so cool. fun. It, it, it's really fun to see those kids like feed off of each other. And like, and there's other stuff about it. Like I, I, I want my kids to like, just go and experience this life. And I want them to, to experience the good and the bad of it and understand, like, I, I hope my hope for them is that home can be the constant for them that like they can come home and reset and like life's going to be tough and I can't keep you safe from it all, but you can come home. And uh, I want you to kind of do what you want to do and do what makes you happy. Um, give it all a good try, but uh, it's, it's hard sometimes. And uh, it's also just really cool to see them like, as much as you want to influence them to like something or to do something like they do their own thing. Like my son is obsessed with tractors and trailers. Like if he sees a truck pulling a trailer, he loses his mind. Like we have to pull over and look at it. <laughs> and like, that's not something like I'm necessarily like into. And like, he just like loves that sort of stuff. So it's really cool just to see them develop these interests and likes and dislikes as a parent and just, just reaffirms that like we're all shooting from the hip here and you just got like there's you just got to try and be good at like a couple of things but in terms of like a a good vacation we went on um last year last yeah last year we did uh we went on a road trip we did like three thousand miles um we went started in utah and we went to saint george and we went to zions and then we went to um Yosemite National Park. We went and saw El Capitan and did hikes. And then we went to the Redwoods. We drove up to the Redwoods and went through the Redwoods. We went to a bunch of different parks and forests. And uh, it was just really cool to show my kids like parts of the world that they hadn't seen. It was just really cool to see my kids who are like, all right, put your iPad down and look at this big ass tree. And like, they would like, we get out of the car and like to see like my little kid just be in awe of nature. Like, if you've ever stood in a, under a redwood, it's like jaw dropping. And like to see my kids have appreciation for something like that was like just really cool to show them like the cool things in this world. Um, yeah. and, and, uh, and we made sure every where we stayed, we stayed in like a really funky Airbnb that was like bizarre. Like we stayed above in the redwoods. We stayed above. Uh, it was an old like plastic manufacturing plant that they converted the top of it to uh, like a studio apartment. It was super ghetto, but like really cool. And then below it was like a, a bar. And so like we, and you had to climb up like 800 steps to get to it, it was like super janky. And like, I was like, all stressed out. My kids were going to die, but like, they thought it was like magical. <laughs> uh, and so it was like really fun to like stuff like that instead of staying at like a Marriott or something. But so I was just like yeah. a super me memorable trip and my kids had a blast and I was like, I never wanted to be in a car again afterwards, but it was a blast, super memorable. And I never got <laughs> to do cool. like trips like that as a kid. Like we just, we never really went on trips like that. So it was just fun to make that memory with my kids. Yeah. Good. 
Hey, and I meant to ask earlier, what's the prognosis for your son? Um, I've, I know a few other kids who have had heart problems and, uh, and uh, surgeries, you know, really young in life. And it's like, you sure. know, some of them can, um, normal life, but will, will not, um, you know, being an athlete is sort of out of the question and, but they can, you know, walk at a moderate pace and, and live a, sure. you know, calm situation. What's, what's a, uh, your son's prognosis? Yeah. So, um, in, in a nutshell, what they did to his heart was they made a single pumping chamber. And so what that means is you have left and right side of your heart that are responsible for sending blood throughout your body to your organs and your brain. And then it sends that used deoxygenated blood back to your heart and then into the other chamber, sends it to your lungs to retrieve oxygen and then back to your heart and starts that cycle over. Since he only has the right side of his heart that's really adequate for pumping, they cut holes in the middle of the heart and made it one giant pump. And so now we need to figure out how to get the blood to the lungs if we have just a single pump for the body. So you have on your heart, your inferior vena cava and your superior vena cava. Those are the main arteries on the top and bottom of your heart responsible for pumping or re retrieving oxygenated blood. So they unhook both of those lines from the heart and hook them directly into his pulmonary line or directly into his lungs. And so now the flow of his blood is that that pumping chamber, his heart pumps that blood through his body and then it flows directly into his lungs. And from his lungs, it flows into his heart. And so it's just kind of one direction now. And wow. so it's, it, it's, it's getting the job done but um, his blood oxygen levels are lower than the average person. Like a normal, a normal person like here in Utah at our altitude is like 98 to 100% oxygen. Um, where his, before his last surgery was about 70%. 70%, 75% is about what we have running up and down a full court basketball court. So like that's about what his saturations were at sitting still. And so doing anything else was like wearing him out, you know? So it was like his heart was in a sprint. And so now he, his, his oxygen is in the low 90s. So he went from 70 to 90. So you can imagine like after this last surgery, he was feeling like a million bucks after his surgery. That's so and he, cool. He's got a ton of energy. But the downside to all of that is uh, he has a heart that's doing the job of two it's doing two jobs in one. And so it's, it's going to wear itself out faster than a normal heart. And the other problem is he has what they call passive flow. So he doesn't have like as much pressure pumping his blood. And so the biggest obstacle he has is his blood flowing back up against gravity, like from his feet mm -hmm. back up into his organs. And so he's on blood thinners to just kind of thin the blood out and let it flow smoother. But the first organ that that blood hits is the liver. And your liver is super vascular. And if you ever hear about like somebody going to liver failure, they're pretty much like once you go to liver failure, your rest of your organs follow pretty quickly. And um, so what ends up happening if the flow is bad and it starts to go into that liver, we've seen pictures of what it looks like when that starts to happen, like the flow, like in dyed blood, they showed us like basically the blood starts to find the path of least resistance just starts going straight through the liver and the outside of the liver starts to die and they start to go into liver failure. And at that point, if the liver is doing bad, but the heart repair is doing good, they'll say we should probably get a heart transplant 
because getting a new liver is just going to happen again. It makes more sense to get a new heart, a normal functioning heart and a normal mm. functioning liver at the same time from the same donor. And so liver failure is uh, something they'll keep a close eye on and all obviously his heart, but they've learned a lot through the years, like 10 years ago, they weren't really following the liver as closely. And so they were like, oh yeah, the heart looks great. And then by the time they caught it, the liver was in liver failure. There's a lot of stuff they can do to keep, to prolong, give the liver more mm. life. Um, and so he has a ton of specialists that follow him. Um, but the idea so is he, if he was, go ahead. I was going to say, so he's probably at some point, uh, as maybe as a teenager or adult, he's going to need a new heart. And yeah. So, so but, the idea but, is to, is to get him as, as far along as we can. So if he was to need a new heart to get a new heart right now, his chances of rejecting that heart, like are pretty high. Like he'd probably have a heart like for like two or three years and would his body would reject it. And the other problem is heart transplants. The, the donor list is already like, it's hard to get a heart. And then you narrow that down to a kid, you narrow that down to his blood type, really, really hard for him to get a heart. So he would probably, if he went into heart or organ failure right now, there's a higher chance that he would probably die on the donor list before he'd get a heart. And so the whole idea of this repair and the physiology of his heart is to prolong his life as long as we can to where he's as most receptive and viable for a heart. And so you or I, as a full grown adults where our bodies aren't growing anymore, um, if we were to get a heart, we could typically have a heart for 15 or 20 years before we would wear out, maybe even longer. And so given like the statistics that he has and, and how he's performing now, they think he can make it well into his forties before he would need a heart. And the heart wow. medicine, heart medicine and transplants and, and just all the things they can do, the future looks super, super bright for him. Like they're just advanced, making so many advances, um, every single year, um, that it looks super bright for him. And so the other thing is like, things can go wrong and like, you know, he can unexpectedly, there's a, there's a, we live in the reality that like he could, he could not wake up. Like he could, something could happen. It's not very likely. It's more likely than my other kids, you know? Um, but it's likely something can go downhill. It won't likely won't go downhill very fast, but something could change. And there's something very daunting and terrifying about that, but also something sort of freeing because the chance, the reality is like my five-year-old can get hit by a bus, you know, like any of us could die tomorrow. And kind of coming to terms with that, like not in a morbid way, but just in a, a realistic way, it truly makes you like appreciate your relationships. It makes you appreciate the last thing you say out the door, it makes you appreciate how you spend your time and how you spend your time away from your family. Like that's probably the biggest positive I can say we took from it. Hmm. Man. Dude, it's been awesome to talk with you. Um, I appreciate you sharing your story. Um, I'm, I'm happy to tell it. appreciate it. I, I've got a couple questions we'll wrap up with. So okay. um, as you look to the future, tell me one thing you are optimistic about. <clears throat> yeah, I think um, I think with everything in society or in the world, whether it's in economics or in societal problems, they're usually when there's a problem that's recognized and there's... Um, something that needs to happen to adjust it or to influence change almost always it seems like it gets it gets swayed like super heavy into the other direction and then it needs to balance out like you think of like economics like 
there's a theory in economics that if you do nothing to stimulate the economy in a recession, it'll always bounce back. But if you stimulate it in the right way, it will be very negative up front, like incurring debt or, or you know, infusing money into, into certain business uh, systems. Like it'll be top heavy, but it'll event if it's done right, it'll it'll level it out much faster. And we see that happening in the economy. We've seen it happen in like in the past recessions. Um, and then we came booming back. And we see it like with so much like social unrest, like with the Black Lives Matter movement. We've seen it with um, gay rights. We've like we've seen it in the past civil rights, like um there's this this first understanding and recognition of a problem and i think we're seeing that right now people are like everybody's seeing this as a problem and a lot of things are swinging way too far to the other side to try and fix it and maybe we're overshooting on some things maybe we're not doing enough but i'm hopeful that if history repeats itself economically and historically and society that the future looks bright for us as a society to be loving and accepting of each other and being able to exist. And I think it looks bright for my kids and for their kids. And, and I think from, from an economy standpoint too, like with coronavirus and stuff and, and the way the economies have, have shifted, like you look at, you look at some of the most successful businesses that are thriving today are ones that started in the recession of 2009 slack and, and and other you know big booming companies they started out of that that moment of like we need to think through what's how we can adjust to this or how we can figure this out so i think through these super dark and hard times like it brings out the best in the best thinkers like people that we look at it as a problem that we can't solve or looking as an opportunity to make something better and i'm hopeful that like as a society as a country that it's going to become an even better place. And I think about the future for like my son's health. I'm the same way. Like transplanting a heart is easier than what they did to my son's heart. Like they unhooking and hooking a new one in, like they've kind of got transplants figured out. And now they're figuring out how can we save kids who have complex issues like Thai and they're solving those problems. And I'm super grateful for those people who are brave enough to put their career on the line of potentially getting it wrong, but being willing to like, open a newborn baby up and go in there and try and fix it. Something that was just so touching to me was right before Ty's last surgery, um, the surgeon came in. And so one thing we've been battling with is he has a valve that's really leaky. Like when the blood flows in, it, the, it seems like the valve wasn't closing all the way and he was having blood just kind of staying inside that chamber. And so they put him on blood pressure meds and blood thinners to try and resolve that. And they said, it's likely going to be the case that this valve will be what fails before the repair. And there's not much we can do about it. And about three or four months before his surgery, they put his valve at about 65 to 70% functional. And so like that's gone down that much in three years. So we're like, man, if we do the math, like it's not going to last very long. So very scary. Anyway about two weeks before the surgery they call us and they say we we want to order a sedated echo where we're gonna we're gonna put him to sleep and we're gonna we're gonna dye his blood and we want to just really look at that valve and we want to really look at everything just to make sure everything looks good before we do the surgery by the way he was a, he, that whole procedure was five hours in the hospital sedated did the exam and got out it was seventy five thousand dollars it's gnarly but um that's a side no. note but um 
anyway, so we go and meet with the surgeon, you know, a couple of days before the day before he was to be admitted to have the surgery. And we're just going through blood work and getting all that stuff done. And we sit down with the surgeon and you got to, you got to think about it. Like this guy, like literally like a bad day for this guy at work is somebody dies. You know what I mean? Like for me, I'm like, Oh, I lost that deal. You know, there's 20 more to get, but this guy, like somebody died on the table or something, you know, but a good day for him has got to be pretty good, you know, but like, this is, this is the, the, the stakes that he's playing at, you know? And so he takes it very, very seriously. And, and I trust him. I've known him since before Ty was born and I, I have supreme confidence and trust in this guy's decisions and opinions. You have to. And, um, Anyway, he sits us down and he goes, you know, we're going to go in and do their repair and, I'm, and it's, it's going to be a piece of cake, but I want to go in to that valve. So that means I got to open his heart up, but I want to get in there. I think I can, I think I could help it. I think I could go in there and make it better. There's more risk to what we're doing and I have to have his heart stopped longer and he has to be on bypass for a lot longer, but I think I can improve it. Are you okay with that? And I'm like, man, like, how often in our careers do we think, man, that could be a safe move, but if I, that could be a good move, but if I get it wrong, maybe I'm, I'm going to look like a fool. So I take a safer route. Like this guy's willing to do this thing. Like I might go in there and realize I can't do anything. I have to close it back up. It might make recovery longer. It might mess with the rhythm of his heart. Like we don't know, but I'm willing to go in there and try. And I thought, man, like that's so courageous of this guy. Like, it's not like, what's he going to get extra out of it, you know? And he we come out of the surgery and we're meeting with him and he goes so i got into his heart and i opened that valve up and i realized there's a hole in that valve that we couldn't see in the picture that that's where the the valve was getting through because he's like it didn't make sense to me because it was his, he had good pressures in his in his valve and in his heart it didn't make sense where, where the blood was regurgitating because it seemed like it was getting a good close he's like so i saw that hole and he's like i put a stitch on it and then I took bypass off and I let the heart pump and it's at like 98% functionality. So I think we oh, just repaired it. It's like, I think we just repaired it. And so I'm like, dude, like the, he like potentially saved my son's life in a massive way by just being, you know, like courageous enough to go in there and do that. And I just am in at awe of these people that are willing to, to just solve hard problems, but then also just willing to go and do it. Like it's, 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 it's mind numbing to me to think like, I, I can hardly stand the sight of seeing my kid in, in stitches and in pain that he's inflicting it, you know, for, a, for, for something much greater out a potentially much greater outcome. Like to be able to be willing to fight through all that, to go in there and fix it and like go to battle for my son. Like just really cool. It's really, really cool and really humbling. Yeah. All right. Before we let you go, any shows or podcasts you want to recommend other people to check out? Yeah. So there, there's a, a couple that I listen to. Uh, I've started listening. I really love, like, I love hearing entrepreneurial stories. Um, so I love how I built this. Um, it's really great just to go hear somebody's story. And like I said, that's, you find the common ground of it's, it's just ordinary people just willing to try. You know, that, that's, that's a common thread. And so it's, it's very motivating to, if you're thinking about starting a business of like, you probably can do it. Like if you've got a good idea, like surround yourself with people who are smart and smarter than you and you can do it. And there's a lot of that message in that podcast. And it's from every walk of life and type of business from, you know, restaurant chains to tech companies to, 
um, anything you can think of. And then another one I've started listening to is how to start a startup. And it's almost like a TED talk version of how I built this. Um, you got to kind of accept that a lot of these entrepreneurs are introverts and not public speakers. So they're terrible presenters, but they have really, really good nuggets of like some of the scar tissue that they have from starting a business that could be very, uh, uh, you just don't know until you've gone through it. And so it's good to hear it. Um, and then yeah. where I, I love to go for like just a really unbiased take on events that are happening is the Joe Rogan podcast. Like, I just like to listen to it because I feel like he's just so middle of the row and willing to be the devil's advocate. But also you can tell like that might not be his opinion, but he's willing to hear the other opinion and he's willing to have his opinion changed right there. And I just think that we're, miss we're missing a lot of that in media today of like just being willing to look at something unbiased for what it is rather than through like what it probably should be or what we can want to make it look like. I think that's a really good place to, to go and, and just like, he had, he, he had a, a guy on um, that was talking about what the coronavirus is going to look like when there was like five cases in the United States. And it was just really, Joe Rogan was thinking it was like all BS and he, he uh, had this guy on and this guy kind of called it. So it's just, I, I love to go there when I want to like, hear a topic of, of that's interesting to me or that's relevant to what's going on. Like I know I can go there and at least get like an educated point of view with a guest that he has on and an unbiased stance um, in the way that he asks questions. Totally. Yeah. I love listening to his podcast. Um, he is. Yeah. Um, it's, it's like, uh, you know, a box of chocolates. You might not like every one, but there are a lot of good, um, a lot of good content in there. And then further, I think he's a, in some sense, a role model for the country, at least from a, um, cohesion and, um, just friendliness, uh, standpoint, um, in the, being able to talk about political things with people who disagree, but being kind about it, you know, like what, yeah, for sure. what assume happened, you know, decades and generations ago, but is, it doesn't happen anywhere, you know? Yeah, um, sure. I feel like he's like so. a genuine seeker of understanding and truth. And yeah. whether that's from what he knows or doesn't know, he's willing to find that answer. And certainly something that like I, I try and do. And if he wants to use mushrooms to help him find that truth. Good right. <laughs> yeah. And, that, and that's the beauty of podcasts is you can, you can skip over it once you, you don't want to watch. You dig right into the nugget. I can't believe how he can keep it together when he's stoned like most of the time. Yeah. I'm just like, yeah, man. Dude. Yeah. yeah. He's a high, he's a high functioning drug consumer. <laughs> Absolutely. Yeah. It's uh, incredible. Anyway, but I do love listening. You, you, you get a mix of like, you know, um, researchers from MIT or Harvard talking about the latest, you know, um, on this or that, and you, or you get someone, an astronaut or whoever, yeah. um, or, or you get like his buddy who's a stoner or yeah. You yeah. Know, some, yeah, for sure. Theory, whatever. Just yeah. He keeps it I'll fresh up for on sure. that one. Um, <laughs> All right. Uh, last question is, is there a good cause you wish more people knew about or were contributing towards? Yeah. One that I was naive to um, before my son was just um, donating blood, like ARUP or whatever the like blood banks that are nearby. I didn't realize again, like I am 0% of medical professionals. So like I was crash course and all this stuff. But I just didn't realize that 
when you donate blood, it only lasts for like 30 to 40 days and they need new blood. Like it's not like they can go stockpile. And so they're in constant need of blood. And my son um, had multiple blood transfusions. And there was a time like last year, they called me because I was like, I got on the list. I'm like, man, if I can never, if I can give my left leg to primary children's, I will, you know, like they've saved my kid. I, I owe them forever. But they called and they said, we have a baby here who um, is going to have surgery in a couple of days and we don't have any blood for him and you're his blood type. I'm like, take all my blood. You know, like I went up and, and drained the vein wow. for them. Like, and they're just in constant need. And it's a hard, it's a scary thing, but like, that's um, yeah, just something that like hospitals always need. And so um, I, Boostability was really cool. When we, when I was there, we did like a blood drive and we, we called them and they came down to our office and like one of those like, motor homes and like we all just came out of the office and gave blood right there so there's like a lot of really convenient ways that you can do it but um, yeah. be, pre- be prepared once you get on the call list of arup like they're calling you like a like a call center to give blood but um <laughs> yeah. but like you know my it saved my kid and uh, uh so i feel you know i owe them a couple pints every now and again <laughs> for sure man because i like to ask that question because i Oh, uh, like good causes, right? We all do and um, have benefited sure. from many of them. But, um, you know, rather than donating 15 bucks or 1500 bucks to some some cause, whatever it may be, like giving some blood is um, that that may be up there with the, the better. Yeah. It doesn't, you know, cost you anything but some time and, and you're quite literally saving lives. So that, that's a good yeah, call. For sure. man. All right. Yeah, thank sure. you for coming on, man. I have loved to hear this story. I've uh, dried some tears while you were talking and uh, <laughs> had my my mind opened up to try to imagine what that was like. Uh, thank you for sharing the story and, and uh, learning experiences you've had. And um, I think helping everyone uh, be ready to go hug their children uh, a little closer and um, uh, appreciate each day. So where can people who want to reach out to you or, or learn about you find you? Yeah, man. Well, thanks for having me on. I, I appreciate it. It was a pleasure. Um, glad that we got to finally figure a time out to do it. Um, I'd say uh, I'm on, I'm on uh, LinkedIn quite often. Find me and bald with a beard on there. Um, and then uh, I'm on social media, Facebook and Instagram. Uh, usually just post some pictures of my kids on Facebook and Instagram, but <clears throat> in LinkedIn's where I'm at professionally. So that's where they can find me. Awesome. Thanks dude. Enjoy your afternoon. Yeah, you too, man. Appreciate it. Thank you for listening to the show. If you enjoyed the show, please consider telling someone about the podcast. You could talk to someone or send a text message You could even fold them a sweet origami swan that has dad conversations written inside it. Or you could share an episode on social media, maybe even write a review of the podcast on your podcasting app. If you think the podcast sucks, that's totally cool. And I want to know why. Please send me any constructive criticism, such as a new question you'd like me to ask or a request to stop saying um. Also, feel free to send unconstructive hate mail or whatever's on your mind. You can find me at Sean Radvansky on LinkedIn or DM Dad Conversations on Twitter. Whatever you do, 
I hope you have a great day.